Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung, or should that be tally-ho, tally-ho. Um, hello there, we have ways of waking you talk listeners. Um, it is I, Al Murray and James Holland, and we're going to cut to the chase and talk about the Battle of Britain. Um, I'm just going to pull up the script that we were sent, because um, <laughs> I'm chafing at the bit to do this. Um, I just want to I just want to get on with this, because this is sort of, um, this is sort of a big one. It's where... Uh, Oh, thing, look, look, I mean, 90, interestingly, you know, for, for us Brits, you know, 1940s is the daddy, isn't it? I mean, it's just, well, it, I, it's the big one. It's, 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 you know, it's the hinge of fate. I'm Derek D-Day, though. I think that, 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 we're, that when, when we're back in 1944, yeah, when we're I back know, to, in France. I know, France, that's good, but it's, just, it, but, it, but it's kind of sort of, you know, from the disaster of, of the fall of, of France, a strategic earthquake to kind of sort of holding out over that summer. And the fact that it is summer, not winter, and it's kind of, you know, air battles over Kent and Sussex and shenanigans mine anyway, laying we, in the channel but, all the rest of it but the reason we want to, the reason we need to talk about this aside from you know uh, uh, in recent weeks we've had some fantastic guests, guests many of whom have helped reshape the narrative of the British alone um, uh, taking on the overwhelming might overwhelming might of Hitler's forces everything's got to be in inverted commas at least seven sets for this bit None more, yeah. more so than Phillips O'Brien, who caused a good deal of debate after pointing that out that, in fact, the British were not alone and were not the underdog. But that doesn't mean the bravery of the few should be seen as anything less than it was a spectacular effort of skill and courage in the face of a dangerous and determined enemy. But enough from me. James Holland has, of course, written a whole book on this subject. I mean, you know, you really don't need me to bullshit on about this. Although I've, I, I've done a little bit of... Um, uh, well, we, I, I've sort of chopped up... Um, different ways of looking at the Battle of Britain, to, you know, because we, we had lumpers and splitters the other day from Gary Sheffield about um, how you. Oh do yeah, no, that was quite a good line. I quite like. Are you a lumper or a splitter? Well, so Battle of Britain schools of thought. There's the optimist school of thought. I've decided to call it, which is you, James. Um, yeah. You're up on you're up on the British effort. You're up on the the way of looking at it. That that um, yep. there's nothing that that that, that there's. There's nothing surprising about um, Fighter Command winning the winning the Battle of Britain. Actually, when you stop stop and have a look at what there is, then I've got the the pessimist view, which is sort of Len Dayton. You know, uh, we didn't win, but we didn't lose it either. And uh, the Germans had to absolutely win it. And as long as they're stopped from winning it, uh, that's that's enough. You don't have to win the Battle of Britain. You just have to make sure you don't lose it, right? Which is the sort of Lendate view. And I remember Lendate book from when I was a kid, which was very much lots of pressure on RAF fighter stations uh, as the first stage of the battle, then the switch to the switch to bombing London, which of course gives fighter command the breathing space it requires, which I think is a, a thing people really very much have in their heads as a way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Then the whole the narrow margin, the close run thing. Yeah, well, well, which which takes us to the declinist view, which is I think. It's just the next step down, which is what the thing Leo McKinstry um, had in the paper the other day. We only just won it. Oh, God, you have no idea how close it was. Because I think that's even that's even a step down from Len Dayton going, well, you know, as long as we didn't lose, we, we won. Yeah. 
Then there's the Churchillian view, which I think the really interesting thing about the Churchillian view of the Battle of Britain is it's interpretable. Um, it's a Cold War version because it's being served up as a sort of, look, Britain stood alone against tyranny. We have new tyranny to stand up against and you need to stand with people who stand up against tyranny, which is the... Which is the but it's interpretable, isn't it? Because, because he says... He, 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 what he doesn't actually say is we nearly lost, does he? He says that we stood no. firm and that's why we won. So you can actually, you can feed declinist into it, you can feed pessimist into it, you can feed, actually feed an optimist view into, into it, I think, the Churchillian view, which shows he's a politician because he's being flexible. He's a politician writing history, so he's being flexible yep. with an open-ended interpretation. Then there's the inevitableist school, which is people like Phillips, who, for whom in the Second World War there is only one battle that's um, in the balance, and that's that's the invasion of France in 1940, or David Edgerton's War Machine, where you know you're talking about this great big meat grinding thing, and, and what, what the British establishment has to do is turn the handle, and eventually it minces everything in front of it, so to speak. Uh, and we've what we've talked we've talked a lot about this, and we've seen these different we've seen in response to Phillips talking about the few and about the myths of the Battle of Britain, and he had a good thread the other day where he really got into it. Um, anyway, I, I, I'm I, I think it's it's quite interesting that there are this many schools of thought about it, rather than perhaps Normandy, where there's two, where there's um, the Allies were crap, the Germans were brilliant. Um, uh, that they won basically by cheating, by being having more stuff, or the other view, which is you know that there's a war machine, there's a there's a there's a and it's a, a and you're being cautious because that's the right thing to do because you're being sensible because you're more you've got your you've got your stuff worked out anyway. But but so so as we go into these questions, I think it's worth thinking which one of the, which these reflect as we go. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I, I mean. <sighs> The thing is, is the whole kind of defeatist view, the kind of sort of, you know, we were staring down the barrow, the narrow margin, all that kind of stuff, is largely based on two things. First of all, it's going back to the strategic earthquake of the fall of France. And, you know, even if you look by kind of middle of July 1940, you know, the British government has got a huge amount on its plate. It now knows by this stage that I think Turkey's not, going to come in on their side there is now um the, the the italians have gone into british somaliland so suddenly you've got a whole kind of war going on in east africa which you've got to service and deal with at some point then you've got you've got the threat of um the italians moving into egypt you've got the threat from the japanese in the far east and you've got suddenly you've got an awful lot of spinning plates you've got spain you know, and Samuel Hoare, who is the ambassador out there, former Chancellor of Exchequer, but now um, ambassador is out there, is also kind of, you know, is an absolute, you know, and this particularly Madrid is a kind of sort of city of spies and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's absolutely awash with rumour, you know, is Franco going to kind of go in with Hitler and all the rest of it, threaten Gibraltar? You know, are they going to have to give up the Mediterranean? Where are they going to get the tanks from? Where are they going to get the arms from and all the rest of it? There's actually quite a lot of juggle because... Because what Britain is, Britain is ready to fight a defensive air battle to a certain extent, but what it isn't ready for is global war. Uh, and and yes. that is the strategic earthquake. And you also have to accept that at the end of May, beginning of June, everyone is just absolutely just, they can't believe what is going to happen, what has happened to France and what that means. And, and the Germans, to a, to a, 
to someone who's not in the know, who doesn't know about how much we've got where and, and what kind of resources we've got and all the rest of it, it just seems so incomprehensible because the, 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 the spin that had been presented to the British people was, we'll beat Germany because we're stronger and we're bigger and we're better and we're more industrialised and all the rest of it. And we've got France. Well, France is gone and the Nazis are kind of sort of, you know, are on Cap Grenet and, and kind of staring at them from Calais. And that all feels, seems incredibly difficult. But of course... That's then, and that is what people are thinking then. And it's very interesting when you read sort of diaries of Harold Nicholson and Vita Sackville West and stuff who are down at sort of Sissinghurst in Kent, so comparatively close across the channel. You know, and they're, they're you know, they've got their sardine pills ready, you know, and, and they can't yeah, yeah, yeah. see how they can possibly win. And Harold Nicholson is a junior minister. Uh, um, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so so although he's kind of quite a big step removed from from the absolute, you know, from the war cabinet, you know, that's his view. He just he he he's a naturally kind of slightly pessimistic person anyway, and, and just the odds just seem overwhelming. But of course, the role of the historian is to look at this bigger picture and and take a step back, uh, and and we looking at it from the perspective of 2020 can take out take away that emotion we can take away that kind of lack of knowledge that even someone like harold nicholson has or a or a punted a civvy down in dover has and we can go well actually let's look at what they've got because we've got access to all those figures now which your general person hasn't so that is where that kind of uh, and you can see that britain's actually got an awful lot more assets and a lot more kind of sort of feathers in its cap than it might have seemed at the time in 1940 and and you know, we can we can look at it slightly more in a slightly more dispassionate way. The second reason, so that's one reason why this myth occurs, because it looks to so many people at the time that we're staring down the barrel. My argument is that although it was incredibly serious, and although there were kind of a lot of, of variables that could have made the situation an awful lot worse, in actual fact, it wasn't quite as bad as everyone made out. And one of the reasons why it's not so bad is, of course, because we've got the world's largest navy, because we've got this first fully coordinated air defence system, um, uh, um, which no other country has. And so that gives a lopsided and warped view to how dangerous the Luftwaffe is. So, you know, the, the Luftwaffe seems to have run, and has indeed run amok in, in you know, in Warsaw, yeah, in swept Poland. All swept all before it. Yeah, swept all before yeah. it, yeah. But that's because it hasn't come up against an air defence system before. So, so the rules are, su- are suddenly and dramatically different the moment that Luftwaffe takes on Britain. But if you're a British punter, you don't you don't know about the kind of sort of arcane detail of the Dowding system. You, you know you know there might be some radar on the on the stations on the coast, but you don't really know what they are because it's secret. So you can understand why people would feel that the Luftwaffe is unstoppable. But that is all part of the myth because where we get that myth from is from diaries and mass observation. We've talked about that before, which was this thing that was set up where people kind of, to, to, to gauge what public opinion was, it was originally set up in the 1930s, but then became absolutely kind of essential in the, in the um, an amazing resource in the Second World War. So there's all that as well, um, uh, playing into it and playing into that kind of myth thing. But the other big reason is because although our intelligence is very good on the on the Luftwaffe and we know what units are where pretty much, certainly by the beginning of August 1940, we assume that their Staffel, which is the basic unit equivalent to a squadron, is the same as a squadron when it isn't. Whereas a British squadron is double the size of a, of a German Staffel um, and quite often three times the size. 
And that is the big difference. So that when Dowding a Park, um, Park being the commander of 11 Group in South East England, Dowding being the overall commander-in-chief of Fighter Command, when in the sort of, you know, third week of August, the beginning of September, they're thinking that they've got frontline squadrons operating at 75% pilot strength, what they're really meaning is 16 to 18 pilots to service 12 in the air, rather than 20 to 24. Whereas 75% strength um, for the for Luftwaffe Staffeln is absolutely par for the course, and that means nine pilots rather than 12. And that is yeah. just accepted yeah, as yeah. that is what it's going to be like. Uh, and even even units like JG-52 are being withdrawn from Luftwaffe, um, uh, uh, from the Luftwaffe in northern France at the, be- at the beginning of August. So even before Eagle Day, Adlertag, they're being withdrawn because of pilot losses. Well, so 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 one of the one of the advantages Fighter Command has is it's it's essentially overstaffed um, <laughs> in in essence in terms of pilots, which means you you lose a pilot, there's another one, and and they're running this home advantage that we've talked about before anyway. That yes. that, that if you're shot down, you bail out over Kent, you're back you're back on your base by by supper. Anyway, right, we've a load of questions. We asked yes, we tons have. and tons and tons and tons of qu- questions. Um I mean what we've done there was just sort of prized the lid off the can of worms, James. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that opening, yeah, yeah, opening yeah, yeah. bit. Right. So, um uh I've just started Liz J says, I've just started Eagle Day and it notes Sperler suggested targeting the British ports to cut off sea traffic. Would this have been more damaging for the British and did the Germans have the resources to take the ports out of action to a significant degree? Well, I think that, 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 that whatever the Germans do that offers our, our RAF Fighter Command an opportunity to encounter and destroy and attrit the Luftwaffe is good for Fighter Command. So if you, if you had had Speller, if you'd followed that suggestion and you had, had attacked ports, it would have created an opportunity to, for Fighter Command to attrit the Luftwaffe. And the Luftwaffe, after all, its job is it, it's been designed as a tactical army-coordinated frontline battle hammer hasn't it yeah it's not been designed for attacking ports and when they do attack ports because that that does happen when mm. they do attack ports it it results in the Luftwaffe being attrited yeah doesn't it so i don't know that it would have i don't know i don't know that they did have the resources to take the ports out of action to a significant degree and i don't think it would have been more damaging for the british well, I mean, the truth is they absolutely do um, attack ports. I mean, Portsmouth is absolutely smashed on the 12th of August, the day before um, Eagle Day, which is the day when they're trying to attack the radar stations as well. So it's the same day that Ventnor, the radar station at Ventnor gets knocked out on the 12th of August, is the day where they get really, really, it gets really, really hammered at, at Portsmouth. Um, there's lots of, um, there's Portland, of course, gets very b- badly hit as well. Uh, um, and they are hitting ports. And, and my old Nazi friend, Heyo Herman, I mean, he was, you know, one day he was dropping bombs on people. The next day he was dropping mines in 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 harbour in harbour entrances on the south coast and um, and even up in he was attacking sort of you know Newcastle and stuff. You know they did go and attack Glasgow. They did attack Liverpool and obviously that built to a crescendo in the Blitz in in May nineteen forty one when when Liverpool was incredibly heavily hammered. But um, the truth of the matter is with the Luftwaffe is it doesn't matter how much it looks like they're sweeping all before them in Poland, in the Low Countries, in Scandinavia, in France. The truth is they don't have enough of anything. And actually, let's just look at those figures for how much the, the Luftwaffe have. To fight on, on the 3rd of August. This is what they've got available on the 3rd of August. So this is 10 days before Eagle Day, which is the all-out attack. Um, so actual strength. So there's a difference between paper strength, which is what you've got in the notebook. The, there's um, 
And then there is combat strength, which is what is available at the various um, airfields you've amassed in northern France, etc., and the Low Countries. And then there is actual strength, for what could actually fly on any one particular day. And that is the key thing. So single-engine fighters are 760, which is about... It's a bit ahead of fighter command, but not by much. Twin-engine fighters, 230. So there's not many Messerschmitt 110s. They have a role to play, but it's not, frankly, much of one. Bombers, 823. 823 twin-engine bombers is is a lot on one level, but certainly by the end of the war, you know that is not enough. Okay, so uh, and then there's then there's a further 343 dive bombers, i.e. Stukas, which are you know within three weeks will be completely withdrawn from the battle. So that is quite interesting because. You know, basically, you've got around 2,100 planes available on that day. And actually, total bomber command strength is about actual strength on that day is about 1,600. But in terms of fighters, probably only about 700, 720, something like that. Um, you know, which is so, so obviously, fighter command is outnumbered, but not the RAF full stop. So it depends on what you're judging. But but what we're interested in is bombers because it's bombers that are going to cause the destruction. You know, bombers are going to destroy ports or lay mines in ports and it's bombers that can um, destroy airfields and, and destroy aircraft on the ground and all the rest of it. You know, 823 plus 343 dive bombers, that is just not enough to do what you want to do against the whole of Britain. Well, yeah, I mean, if you consider if you consider what it takes to... Dis- later on in the war, what it takes to destroy Hamburg in 1943... Three and a half thousand aircraft. Yeah. Heavy, heavy three bombers, days four engine bombers. Yeah, 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 and it and it, it non-stop for days. Um, anyway, right. So I think I think so. So what that question sort of prizes again prizes open is 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 the question of parity and strength. And and so any opportunity that fighter command is given to a trit, um, the Luftwaffe is, is from the fighter command's point of view a good one. And yes. because because Luftwaffe simply isn't strong enough to. I mean, supposedly this the thing we talked about earlier, the two phases of the battle, knocking out RAF stations, radar, RDF rather, and then and then switching to cities. The, the Luftwaffe hasn't got the capability to knock out RDF. It hasn't got the capability to knock out fighter stations. Not really. And and a, a concerted effort, each concerted effort, exposes it to further destruction and. Uh, uh, I mean, the, I mean, the remarkable thing about this, of course, is we are. This is the first proper full-on air supremacy battle, isn't it? So everyone's learning and figuring this out. And one yeah. of the, the things that everyone learns from this is you you can't do this unless you completely overwhelm the enemy, whichever side you are. You have to completely overwhelm. You know, and it's and it's really it's more than you know traditionally the the, the uh, land forces. It's three to one, isn't it, to ensure an attack goes yeah. well. It's more minimum, than that with minimum. aircraft. Minimum of three to one, and 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 they 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 barely got that. That's that's the thing. I mean, you know, the other thing I think it's really worth pointing out is is that the Luftwaffe has grown organically to give direct support to ground operations. So it is by that terms is what we call a t- tactical air force or offering close air support. Whereas in the Battle of Britain, it is suddenly being expected to operate as a strategic air force, i.e., one that's operating on its own without. Um, without influence of the of the navy or the um, or, or the or the ground forces, and that's a role that it's just not been designed to do. So what you get an awful lot of, particularly in the early part of the battle, is a lot of sort of head scratching, not knowing quite what to do. And so it's it's worth just mentioning probably that you know from 
officially the Battle of Britain starts on 10th of July. Um, and that first bit is is them kind of probing away, kind of attacking channel shipping, that kind of stuff. Because at that point, we still had East Coast convoys going down, up and down the East Coast. That was later kind of stopped. And we just thought, OK, well, we'll just use the kind of southwest ports and, and we'll use the western ports instead. Uh, um, but... You know, sometimes they're kind of thinking, well, let's send over a few and do a bit of mine laying uh, and let's do a bit of bombing and let's do a little bit of that. And what they're not doing is what the Germans are not doing, even in that first part of the Battle of Britain or indeed at any part of the Battle of Britain. They're not obeying their own doctrine, which is that of the Schwerpunkt, which is exactly what you were saying, Al, which is about concentration of force and overwhelming the enemy at the point you want to hit. So what they should have done, I th- my own view, is if they're going to do it, they just need to pummel Kent. You know, they just need to kind of focus on those ports and not try going anywhere else. They need to just mass everything against one bit. Um, and that's what they're doing. It's a bit something and nothing and a bit bitty. And, and, and actually, that continues throughout the Battle of Britain. You know, even on Battle of Britain Day, September the 15th, Sunday the 15th of September, 1940, you've still got little raids in the morning, even though they've got these two little concentrated raids. There's still little forays and people kind of doing recce trips and all sorts of... I mean, you know, it's just... It's just it, it all smacks of a command that doesn't quite know what it should be doing. Yeah. Well, because after all, um, I mean, no one expected to be in this situation, least of all the Germans. No. Nobody. The, the, the reason they don't have a strategic air force is because they weren't expecting to need one yet. No. Um, uh, it's all happened at a, for everybody. Everyone is... I mean, we talked earlier on about how the, the British are thinking, oh, my God, what, what, what a mess we find ourselves in. But everyone... Th- effectively thinking that the, you know the, the and the Luftwaffe I mean of course it belies the reputation for German efficiency is the Luftwaffe are improvising like mad and a lot of it doesn't work um uh yeah. which 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 of course you know for feeding these national myths into it you know the Germans are terribly efficient and reliable and everything's worked out in this instance that is just not the case and that and you've got yeah. you've got uh fighter escorts setting off for bomber groups that aren't there you know the whole thing going on like that compl- and and Arguably, arguably chaos. Let's move on to another question because we were sp- we were going to rattle through these because there's loads of them. But what we've done, as ever, <laughs> it's uh, distracted ourselves. It's got a little Jamie bit Mc- sidetracked. Yeah, sidetracked. Jamie, well, Jamie McTrusty says, and uh, Jamie's a regular. I think he's on our Patreon. We see his name from time to time. What are your views on attacks on Luftwaffe air sea rescue aircraft? Were they reporting on coastal convoys as claimed, or was this a cover to deny the Germans a chance to recover their aircrew? Um. <laughs> Uh, it's yes, it's they definitely wanted to deny the Germans a chance to recover their aircrew. Dowding was absolutely um, uh, yeah. uh, dispassionate Dim, about Dim, that. Didn't mince his words about it at all, did he? Yeah, every pilot that gets away is, is a win for the enemy. So, no, yeah. I mean, and even if they are reporting on coastal convoys, you don't want them to re- report on coastal convoys, do you? You want to shoot them down, stop them doing that, deny them that yeah, information uh, as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally, I think it's, you know, under the kind of <laughs> situation of a time, it's entirely justified. I mean, you, you know, you've got you've got um, an enemy vessel on the ground or, or, or an airplane that, that's operating in, in British airspace or on British waters, um, trying to rescue pilots so that they can attack Britain again. You know, shoot the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I'll tell you what, we'll, I'll jump ahead one and then go back. So because this, I think, is related. Wargamer CC says, how low was too low for a pilot to bail out successfully? Well, that's a good uh, question, isn't it? That is a very I good it question. Depends, it depends how it depends how fast you're going um, as you as you as your Spitfire or Hurricane is is um, hurtling uh, down. Um, 
so um, yeah, is it? I don't know. It, yes, uh, uh, yeah, I would have thought kind of. 500 feet, it's not, you wouldn't want to much lower than that, would you? 500 feet, probably, but if you're, you know, because if you're doing 500 miles an hour, as you, because you were, because you were fatally attacked yes. at 15,000 feet. Plummeting earthwards. Plummeting, exactly. I mean, are you 500 feet get probably not going to be enough, open? is it? No. Probably isn't going to be enough. So I, do, I don't know, um, is the answer to that. I mean, those, those, those shoots, are, they're like a reserve, aren't they? Um, so they've got a big spring in them that bang fires the thing open, aren't they? Are they like that, or are they? Yes, uh, I think so. I think they, uh, no, I think they've got a, they've got a, you've got a, no, there's a thing you've got to tug, there's a, there's a, there's a pull you have to, but, but I mean, you just think what you've got to do. To, I mean, what you're supposed to do to get out is obviously pull back the canopy, but that doesn't come back at a certain speed. It's very difficult to get open because, of course, you know, forces of gravitational pull and all the rest of it. So what you really want to do is be in a kind of nice level, gliding, you know, in a level in a level situation. You then have to kind of sort of um, undo your um, radio leads, then your oxygen leads, pull open the canopy, invert the plane, and you just drop out. And in those circumstances, it's absolutely fine. But if your plane's on fire and you're diving, you've basically still got, you know, you've got to still undo your radio leads, take out your oxygen mask, get over the canopy, invert yourself and pull out. And if you don't do it in that time that I've just described what you've got to do, you're going to fry. So it's um, uh, and, and it's particularly bad in a hurricane, for example, because they have the, um, the, the, the fuel tanks at the wing roots. And it's actually everyone always sort of assumes it's the fuel tank above your legs. That, that, that's the big trouble. The real problem is that you've got these fuel tanks at the wing roots. And once you've fired your guns, you've got these eight, eight machine gun ports um, quite close together on each wing. And of course, the air then goes into those holes through the machine guns and, and fans the flames up into the into the cockpit and that's that's why the, the hurricane is so completely brutal particularly bad you know i mean obviously any plane you can you can burn to death in it but but that's why the hurricane is particularly bad so it's very very difficult it's just really difficult we're going to take a brief terrifying. break we'll be back in a second with more of your questions it's all terrifying james that's the the, the keynote here <laughs> we'll see you in a tick Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're, we're trying to get through your Battle of Britain questions. I have a feeling that we are not going to be able to do all of this in one episode and we'll be talking about this again shortly or even forever. What a Who shame. Knows? What um, a shame. What, we'll have to do what? another episode on Battle of Britain next Tuesday. Drat. <laughs> right. Um, Graham McCulloch. Graham McCulloch asks, my gran, who was in the ATS, greatly admired General Sir Frederick Pyle, who was in charge of anti-aircraft command. How effective was ACAC? Yes, well, to start off with, not terribly, because they didn't have enough of it. And they had to have these rules where they all had to fire the guns as much as possible, even if they weren't firing at targets to, for, for the morale of the people, to make it sound like there were more guns than there actually were. The one thing I would say about Frederick Parvo, he, he, was, he was pretty switched on dude. And he shared, a, you know, he, he, he was at Bentley Priory. So he was at Fighter Command headquarters so that they could coordinate with um, Fighter Command. Um, their operations, and actually, it was from Bentley Priory that they they um, signalled the, uh, the 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 sirens as well. So, so you know that, you that was that, that was decision. Okay, right, fire the sirens now. Wait a second, are we talking army and RAF cooperation in 1940? Can you believe I mean, it? The, the, yeah, <laughs> and Dowding and Pyle really got on; they really liked each other, um, and, and which obviously helps enormously. But yeah, so it was it was pretty ineffective start off with, and got more and more effective. I mean. You know, I remember. Um, I mean, in the in the um, 
just to sort of switch it back over to Germany, I mean, you know, there's sort of 15,000 anti-aircraft guns in the Greater Reich, you know, in, in, in the Third Reich by the early 1944. And I think there's a, something like a 0.002% chance of hitting something. So you've got to fire something like three and a half thousand shells before you, you know, statistically. Um, um, so it's incredibly difficult here, even with advances in sort of gun laying radar. So the idea is that you have this radar that tracks it, which then sends information back down to the gun crew and then predicts where you need to fire. Because obviously you've got the time, you've got the, the motion of the plane going forward and you've got the time it takes for the shell to reach that target. So... Um, you know, you can understand why it's so difficult. The, the most effective way to shoot down a bomber, without any shadow of doubt whatsoever, is in a in a in a fighter plane. But what's really interesting is if you, I mean, this is one of the, where that rule slightly changes. Of course, is with dive bombers, and that's the whole point of dive bombers is that they're getting down really low so that they're more accurate. But the lower they're getting, the obviously the easier they are to hit. Which is why over Malta, for example, by 1942, you've got these box barrages. And the whole idea of a box barrage is that you've got these, um, you've got a density of anti-aircraft guns all all kind of ranged to detonate at a different place. So that as a dive bombing point of view, you are going into this sort of cube, sort of um, this air, this cube in the this sort of invisible cube where you're just going to be going through vast amounts of flak. And steel fragments and all the rest of it. And of course, it's incredibly dangerous, which is why Maltese gunners managed to shoot down 102 German planes in April 1942 alone. But but that sort of rate of of, um, of attrition is not being achieved anything like that in 1940 over, over London or elsewhere. I mean, it's partly sort of about denial, isn't it, ACAC, as much as anything else, is that, that you know there's somewhere stiff with ACAC, so you, you, probably, you go somewhere else maybe. Uh, yes, uh, and it's but it's also a big part of it is is to show that the the the, the people down below, the people who are suffering all these bombing, that actually there's a whole load yeah, of stuff. Yeah, something's on being done. Already, something's being done here. Okay, Lydia Jane asks: Can we hear more about the battles fought down the coast of northeast England? This area was bombed heavily during August 1940 from Luftwaffe bases in Nor- Norway, repelled by fighters from RAF Usworth, Sunderland, and Acklington, Northumberland. Rarely gets talked about. Well, I suppose. I mean, it it, it is it's. In the story of the Battle of Britain, it is very much presented as a sideshow, isn't it? I mean, you you get that you get that big raid where they send no fighter cover, don't they? And um, everyone Triffield. on the northeast coast, yeah, when they go yeah, to everyone, head on the fifteenth of August, yeah. yeah, that's right. And everyone on the northeast coast gets a chance to to, to have a go at shooting down Germans rather than. Um, Rather yeah, including, including our old friend Cocky Dundas, who's with Six One Six Squadron. We, we 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 talked about him a little bit, I think, when we were doing Dunkirk, um, and I've just been writing about him again for for Sicily. So it's amazing what a war he had. He ended up being the youngest group captain in the RAF, by the way, but Italy he was twenty three. But um, but but in the Battle of Britain, yeah. So he's he's up at Leckenfield um, with Six One Six Squadron, um, and uh, you know that is Air Fleet Five, um, which is uh, based in in Norway. They've only got about seven, 270 aircraft in total. Um, no single engine fighters, I don't think. I think they're all they're all kind of Dorniers and Junkers and and Heinkels and and um, a handful of, of ME one one zero twin engine fighters. You know, because of they haven't the single engine fighters haven't got the range, obviously, to go all the way to Britain from there. So inevitably, they're going to be largely coming over unescorted, almost entirely unescorted. And so these Junkers 88s come over on the um, on the 15th of August, for example, and they think they're going to have an easy easy ride, um, and are absolutely horrified to discover that suddenly there's all these these um, 
uh, fighters, these British fighters, have been scrambled to come and intercept them. I mean, it's not what, what they're expecting at all. They do manage to hit Driffield, and they do actually shoot up 10 Whitleys on the ground um, and knock out a couple of hangars. But they lose something like 13 aircraft or something um, shot down. And, you know, it is very much kind of sort of fighter command two, Luftwaffe one, you know, yeah. on that day. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, it's, and, it's, yeah. and it sort of proves, it disproves Leo McKinstry's point, and it also proves the, the value of what Dowding's system is, which is that it doesn't matter how bad things are, you know, every group needs its squadrons. So the country is divided into these 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 groups, um, and and that means that that airfields in Drem outside Edinburgh or Dice or Acklington or Northumberland or indeed Leckenfield or, or wherever Leckenfield, you know, they do have full fighter squadrons there. And obviously you've got a much greater density of fighter squadrons in the southeast and southwest um, and around London, but you've still got these squadrons throughout the country. Uh, and I think well, it's and really all for precisely for that reason. Well, and well, because Newcastle is the home of Vickers Armstrong after all. So you're, you're <laughs> exactly that. you know. And Glasgow, um, and you've, ICI, got, you've got Greenock and the Docks and all the rest of it. Yeah, and ICI in Cleveland and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, if, if we're talking military, defending your military-industrial complex, what you absolutely don't do is strip your fighter squadrons out of, the, out of protecting where your where your tank building and where your, you know, where your arms armaments industry is because yeah, yeah, New, Newcastle is a, is a massive scientific and military centre, um, you know, and and. Obviously, the action is again. This is sort of the action is around London primarily at the the second half of the of the Battle of Britain, really. But 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 what what RAF Fighter Command is doing is protecting all it, all its national assets. Is the idea? Um, but yeah, I suppose but, I suppose in I suppose in the end, because because there isn't a titanic struggle for that part of the um, uh, the, the northeast coast like there like there is in in the southeast. It doesn't get into the story. I think is the is the thing. It's a bit one sided, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I suppose it is. Um, but you know, I mean that 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 raid. That's the last big raid that the the Luftwaffe try kind of you know during daylight hours in the Battle of Britain, you know, in the northeast. So it sort of you know to me that is just confirms the rightness of Dowding's strategy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, yes, it's um, it, yeah. He, he, you know, and that's the fifteenth. The Luftwaffe are defeated, yeah, but that's yeah, the fifteenth August. That's two days after Eagle Day. You know, it's it's, it's the very start of the air battle, so the all-out air battle. Um, so you know, it's it's you know, it's not great that they're already going to go. Okay, okay, so that bit of the plan doesn't work. Never mind. We'll just focus on the. Well, you know, we'll we'll go to Plan B, which is kind of not worry worry about the, you know do large scale raids from yeah. Norway. Yeah, yeah. But basically, yeah. what you're doing yeah. in a trice, you've just taken out of action 270 aircraft, which is part of your arsenal. So instead of having 2,100 aircraft anymore, you've now got 1,800 aircraft and 1,850 yeah. and, and, available. And they're not going. They're not going to redeploy them to Padakalai and make them available to the the, the new balance of effort. No, they're not going to do no, that because they're part of a different uh, air fleet and, and yeah, air fleet exactly stay, stay exactly. And, and then on, the, I think it's around the twenty third of August, they withdraw the dive bombers because they're getting absolutely slaughtered. So you've just taken away another two hundred and forty. So let's get three hundred and fifty, for for argument's sake. So you've now taken out three hundred fifty, two hundred fifty, uh, seven hundred of your aircraft. So you're now down from two thousand one hundred aircraft down to, you know, fourteen hundred. Uh, and that's against 700. And now it's two to one, not three to one, by within 10 days of the launch of the all-out attack. Right, now, Carl Reed. 
Carl Reed asks, and this used to bug me when I was a, when I was making my airfix models. What was the reason that Spitz and Hurricanes were so lightly armed? 303 guns seem so silly. Did they upgrade the weapons during the battle or was it after? Or if what? If after, what sort of armaments do later Mark Spitfires has? Well, they go, they go up to cannon pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. But, and, they're, and they're running tests, aren't they, during the Battle of Britain on uh, um, Spitfires with cannon. But, they're, but it's all about fitting it in the wing and the narrow wing and the Spitfire in particular. I mean, the Hurricane's actually better suited as a, as a larger gun compartment because it's got that chunky, uh, chunky monkey wing. It's, the, it's fitting it in the Spit, but it's basically money, isn't it? It's uh, money. No, the I think it's, no, it's, more, it's more drag and weight, I think, is the issue with cannons. Um, because although you've is got it, eight machine guns rather not, than, say, two cannons, it, it's, this, it's this concern that their cannons are too big and they don't, they, there, aren't en- there isn't enough of them. So that if you, if you have a cannon, you know, you can only pack in kind of 80 cannon shells as opposed to hundreds of rounds of, of, of machine gun ammunition. Um, and, of course, what the, the solution is to have a combination of the two, um, which is what the ME109E does and what subsequent most I mean some marks of Spitfire do have um, just cannons but for the most part for the end of the war um, it's a mixture of cannons and machine guns I mean it's interesting because there is this report that's in the archives up at RF Cranwell uh, from, dating from I think it's 1926 and it says and the, and, the, and it's about armaments of fighter planes and it says whatever you do do not use a .303 Browning machine gun you know it's like you're firing with a with a with a pea shooter um, but there's very good <laughs> reasons for doing it because of course they fit in the wings you know in a way that a cannon doesn't um, and, and you know it is interesting because you know ME109E for example it has 80 cannon shells um, but it has 55 seconds worth of ammunition uh, machine gun ammunition where whereas the combined uh, you know when you fire your machine guns you're firing in a, in a, in a, in a hurricane or, or a spitfire you're firing eight you're not firing. You can't just sort of fire one and and take it in turns. You're firing all eight together, and that and that's supposed to give it eight machine guns in a cone, uh, in a concentrated hole. Is the impact of a cannon? But obviously, you've got to get it at exactly the point of convergence, and that's very difficult to do because you're doing it, judging it by your eyesight and all the rest of it. Uh, um, and so it rarely, rarely happens. And very famously, seventy four squadron fires something like seven and a half thousand rounds of ammunition at a Dornier seventeen, still doesn't shoot it down. But that's of course early on in the battle <laughs> where they're still firing these. You know, so the original tactics were they were these six styles of attack that you would do, uh, and they're all very organised and they all look very beautiful and stuff, but completely impractical when it actually push comes to shove. Uh, and of course, what everyone realised was that the, the I mean, you know, it was Dowding's um, uh, dictum that, that you know, uh, machine guns had to be harmonised. I think it was uh, either 400 yards or 450 yards. And everyone just sort of ignored it after a while. And so, so you know, started harmonising them at 200 yards or 250 or sometimes even 150 yards. I mean, what they realised very quickly as the Battle of Britain progressed was that the only way to shoot down a plane is getting in really, 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 really close. Really, yeah. close. But obviously they do develop this later on and they, they, they overcome these problems. But I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that later on in the war, you've got P-47s and P-51 Mustangs, you know, American fighter planes. They don't have cannons. They've got 50 caliber no, machine guns. No, but it's so 50, cal, 50 cals, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But, but you know, they're still machine guns. So, you know, and I think the other thing to remember is that in 1940, people were still trying to work their way out with, you know, their way with, with air power. What, is it, what does it involve? You know, there, there, there is this realisation that the fast, you know, all, all metal monoplane is the way forward, but that's only recently kind of 
had traction, you know, up until then, it's not about speed, it's about manoeuvrability. That's the whole kind of sort of moving all around, the, dancing all around the sky stuff. You know, what, what the Germans work out is that with the ME109E, the, the three things you need to do is climb very fast, you need to get height. And if you've got height, that means you can manoeuvre around the sky with the sun behind you. Um, and dive on your enemy, your unsuspecting enemy. Um, uh, uh, pack a massive punch when you get there, which which they can do with their fifty five seconds worth of of machine gun ammunition and and their cannons as well. And the really skilled pilots, of course, because they've got tracers. So what you'd have is every fifth bullet would have a little kind of phosphorescence on it, so you could see it going across the sky. So the really good pilot, what they would do is that you have two gun buttons on the um, on the Messerschmitt one hundred and nine. What you would do is you get your bead with your machine gun. And then when you got it, you just got you know one one single cannon shot because you can fire the, you can fire it continuously or singularly um, on the on the one hundred and nine, um, and that that does the trick. Yeah, you'd but not a lot of people have that in. skill. That's the you'd, problem. You walk, walk your fire in if you were good at it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't have to re- necessarily rely on a deflection sight and all that sort of thing. No, but I mean, don't forget the other thing is is how do you practice air gunnery? Well, you well with great difficulty. With great difficulty, why most people are just absolutely <laughs> useless shots. You know, so it's and that's again why you need this advantage of height and speed because then you can just go directly right behind them, right up their ass, and just shoot them out of the sky, and that's the easiest way to do it. Now, Fionn Duffield asks, "What was the Germans' real understanding of our radar at the time?" RDF. <laughs> I'm, I'm a stickler for that. They attacked them early on, but then seemed to stop. Their own development of radar later in the war must have given them some idea of its importance. Well, the Germans, the Germans had radar. They they had they had it, and they had they had. Uh, neat, tidy, little boxed-up radar in the way that the British didn't. And in fact, RDF looked so peculiar and unlike radar, or unlike a radio radio direction-finding device, the Germans didn't recognise it for what it was to start with, did they? They thought, what are these great big aerials along the English coast? Who knows? Who knows what they're up to? They didn't know. They didn't clock it for what it was, did they? And sent Zeppelin flights in the late. In late, it, I think they did think it was some kind of early warning system, but they 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 discounted it as not very effective because they look so because they look so yeah, awful it, and it so unsophisticated look right. compared to. I mean, if you look at if you look at sort of a Freire or Würzburg from 1940, you know, it's the dish, the lattice work dish that rotates 360 degrees and looks like a looks like what you imagine in your mind's eye a radar station to look like of the 1980s or something. You know, so it looks much more kind of up, up to speed technically and indeed it was and uh, but these of course were developed by the navy rather than the kriegsmarine rather than the uh, rather than the luftwaffe and there wasn't much sort of cross-pollination but but they thought that these huge 270 foot high and 360 foot high masks because you've got the receivers and the and the um and, and the you know, the people that, that you've got the the, the mass that's sending out the signals and then you've got the ones that are receiving the the, the pushback and um, they're different heights, but they look incredibly awkward. So you would always have kind of six masts, latticework masts per radar station uh, on chain home. And then there's the chain low, chain home low, which is this kind of slightly more accurate, smaller thing, but the range is less. Uh, and the Germans looked at this. They called it DT. Uh, and they uh, they looked at it and just thought, <laughs> they're so archaic. It's so kind of, you know, prehistoric compared to what we've got. How How big a threat can they be? So Goering orders all out attacks on the on the RDF stations on the on the DT stations on the twelfth of August as a precursor to Evil Day, the sort of warm up act. And you know, again, the British have thought about this, so they've realised that they're going to send out fake radio signals, even if they have been knocked out. So Ventnor gets knocked out, but the Germans don't realise they've knocked it out. Um, and they go, well, actually, it's quite difficult knocking these things out, isn't it? So should we just not bother? And everyone goes, yeah, sod it. We'll just we'll just we'll just mow them down. It'll be fine. Um, and so that's the end of it, and that's the end of their attacks on radar stations. It's I mean it's 
It, I mean, the thing is, is even uh, it, 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 all the reserve stations and all the sort of redundancies built into the into the RDF system anyway meant that 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 I mean, the thing is, is the Luftwaffe has got too many jobs to try and do if it's to achieve what 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 its objective seems to be. If it's got it's got to knock it's got to knock out the RDF. It's got to knock out fighter stations. It's it, it's you know it's got lots to do and hasn't got the means to do all of them. And anyway. As we've said before, it's making up as it goes along doesn't, and doesn't really have a very clear picture of what's happening in the UK anyway. In fact, hasn't got a clear picture at all of what Fighter Command um, amounts to in terms of the resources it has at its disposal, you know, with, with the Observation Corps and all that sort of stuff. It just, it just They don't know, do they? No. And so, and even if you had knocked out, let's say you'd put the RDF out of commission for a week, you've still got the Observation Corps, you've still got... Um, uh, you've still got, and, and, they, and of course, the, the conjecture I've made there is impossible anyway, because mm. there's too much RDF to, to take out effectively. You, even then, how are they going to be able to do that, and then uh, and then exploit on that, and also and also uh, capitalize on that, and, and then and then anyway, how are they going to cope with the attrition that will be built up in each stage of this sort of. Uh, a multifaceted battle that they're trying that they're trying to pull off. Yeah, um, that's the that, that's the issue, isn't it? Uh, uh, again, I mean, it, it it is really interesting, isn't it? That the the, the realisation they've bitten off more than they can chew comes in in the at the sort of staffel level. They realise it, don't they? Soon enough. Yeah. But it's getting it it's getting it all the way up to Goering, who then has to go and tell Hitler. Um, that, Neither that of whom want to hear this. And no one, no, and no one wants to hear this. Of so, course. so constantly because no one wants to, because the, the higher you get up the chain of, of of the Nazi elite, the less people want to be imparting bad news. They're putting on this gloss on things and saying, "Oh no, it's all fine." You know, we're, they're inches away from surrendering and or inches away from breaking them. So they're they're being dishonest to themselves because they don't want to be the one to tell Goering that it's all an absolute shit show. And th- and this is why you know why Adolf Gallen famously kind of you know, stands up to Goering because he's so far down the chain. He doesn't, he feels that, you know, he's, he, it doesn't matter. It matters. You know, it still takes guts to do that, but, but he can, he can tell a few more home truths, but, but, you know, Goering does this thing throughout the battle of Britain where, I mean, you know, the 15th of August is an absolute classic case. Cause it's, I think it's the day where the Luftwaffe lose the most planes. It's either that or the 18th. I can't remember, but, 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 you know, the, the initial orders that day are the weather, weather's going to be bad. So let's not have any orders. Uh, and one of the big problems is that Luftwaffe 2 has this has this underground bunker, which is kind of weird when you're an Air Force commander. I mean, why? And, you know, that can only be because you're scared that the RF is going to come over and bomb you. So they have this underground bunker, so they can't see the sky. So the orders are no flying today on the 15th. And then, you know, they have, a, they, you know, Dykeman, who is the, um, the operations officer, the uh, chief of staff, he comes up and he goes, look, it's a beautiful day. What are we doing? I'm going to countermand this. And then Rykoff, who is the chief one of the staff officers then countermands it and then Dykeman then goes, no, sorry, I'm going to do it anyway. And, and, and Rykov goes, goes, but you know, you're mad, you know, doing this, you know, to take it, you know, going against the orders from the top. This comes all the way from, 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 from Goering. Are you sure you want to do it? And he just goes, oh, sorry, I'm just going to take a punt. We've got to do it. This is such a beautiful day. We've got to, we've got to go for it. And, and so they do, but it means that they're late being organized. It's a bit piecemeal. You know, when they do finally get going, the kind of, you know, initiative's gone. Meanwhile, that same very day, Kessel, um, Goering has ordered all his senior commanders back to Karen Hall, which is sort of northeast of Berlin. I mean, how unhelpful is that? Two days into the battle, when you're, you know, they should, you know, Goering should be going to the Pas de Calais, not the other way around. 
yeah, 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 bonkers. Yeah. It's absolutely bonkers. There's no way to fight a battle at all. Well, this is no way to make a podcast either because I have I've just scrolled through all the questions. We've like another twenty questions to do. So we're going to have to do part two next week, aren't we? Six. So we're going to have to do part, part three, two next week. And then part four. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we, we, this will run and run. Um, happy days. Uh, happy days. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. There will be more Battle of Britain. Um, we haven't yet committed our full reserve to that one. Um, uh, we'll be uh, <laughs> right. Um, one little little bit of um, info. We will not be live streaming on the Patreon on Thursday. Um, uh, we it's the summer holidays. James is in a uh, in Cornwall somewhere, I think, undisclosed location. Yeah. Um, and the Wi-Fi is worse there than it is in the south of France like last week. So there'll be no Toad this week. Although if you want to hear the Toad, <laughs> here yeah. he is. There we go. That's the- I love it. It is. It is. It is Aztec. It's the Aztec, Aztec toad. the Toad. <laughs> um, it's absolutely. Well, anyway, anyway. Well, um, uh, thanks for all of you who watched that um, on the Patreon. Uh, um, uh, this is this is it uh, for this week. But we'll be back with more Battle of Britain next week. That's a promise. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Cheerio. Cheers.